0: Hi there. We're in a series called We Believe Foundations for a Resilient Faith. And what we're doing is looking at the eight key doctrines, the great foundations of Christianity that undergird everything else, and that if you take them out, then the whole structure collapses. And we're looking at them based on the Nicene Creed, which is a 1700 year old document that details what Christians believe and all Christians everywhere, subscribe to it. And it's been a great series. We're now in week seven of eight. And this week, we're going to be looking at baptism and the church. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. So if you have a Bible and can turn there, that'll be wonderful. We've gone through these, uh, these various declarations of the creed one at a time. We've said these are the things that Christians, if you like, have to believe that if you take that out, it's not Christianity anymore. We're looking at the the things in language we've used a lot in this series, the things that are written in blood rather than in pencil or in ink, the things which you're really committed to, that Christianity dies if they disappear. We've said we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. We believe that he came down from heaven and was made human, And that he died for us. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate and suffered death and was buried. We believe that he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. And that he ascended into heaven and will come again in glory. And then two weeks back we saw that also we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified and who spoke by the prophets. And we've got two weeks remaining. As I say, this week we're going to be looking at baptism and the church. And the statement that the Creed makes about these is very interesting. It ties them together in an important way. They say, We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, and we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to look at what some of those words mean over the course of this morning. Um, But before we do, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, Now, this is a passage that's usually known as the Great Commission. That's often what Christians call it. It's Jesus' marching orders, if you like, for the church across history. And if you've been around church any length of time, you've probably heard it before. You may have heard it many times. You actually, heard it. If you've been in the church a few months, you probably heard it preached on on Vision Sunday just a few months ago. So you probably noticed, if you have heard it before, that it has something very important to say about baptism. Right, You probably picked up, as you go through baptism and the church, two topics for this week, you could probably see, well, it's obvious where baptism fits in, because Jesus specifically says, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But it may be a little less obvious, although I think it's equally true that it has something very important to say about our belief in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I think both our belief in baptism and our belief in the one church come out of this text, come out of the Great Commission, as it's called. And We'll start by looking at baptism and seeing how that's true. We'll then come on to see how it's true of the church in a few minutes' time. Let's start with baptism. Jesus says, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. First thing he says about what you do when you make a disciple baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's verse 19. You've got to notice two, I guess, kind of obvious things about that instruction. The first is that making disciples involves baptizing people. If people want to follow Jesus, whatever nation they come from you know go and make disciples of all nations you could go off to the furthest corners of the earth which for the jewish people might have been like britain or somewhere way off the map like that you go to the ends of the earth when you get there and you want and people want to follow jesus you baptize them that's what you do go make disciples baptizing them that's the practical outworking of what it is to follow jesus and we'll see a little bit about why that's true in just a moment, why is baptism so important? It's not something that Jesus said, go and make disciples and then some really committed people might decide they want to go the next step or go the extra mile and they can be the spiritual baptized ones. No, that's not what he says. He says, you go, you make disciples and as you do, baptize them because that's what Christianity will be about. This isn't a British thing or a Jewish thing or something peculiar to any nation. This is something that all Christians do. We believe in baptism. We get baptized in water. That's one obvious point from this text, right? Go, make disciples, baptizing them. Second obvious point, in a way, is that people are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is, we are baptized into, if you like, the name of the Trinity. And it's beautiful the way Jesus words it. just subtly reinforces our understanding of the Trinity, the three-in-one God. Notice what he says, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, plural. So you've got to baptize them in the name, one, of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Three, we are identified with the Trinity, with very specifically this God, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit in baptism. That's why When we baptize people as a church, we will baptize people specifically into the name of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Because it's with this God we are identified through being drenched in water. But it's obvious, we've got to ask that question, why is this true? Why is it so important? Why is Jesus saying the mandate for the church, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them? You think, well, I would have come up with one of those two, but I'm not sure I'd have come up with the other one. Why is that true? Why have billions of people gone through this rather odd, very wet ceremony? What does it represent? Why is it important? Well, it represents all kinds of things. We've got to be honest that that in some ways, symbols are often richer and deeper than we might initially see. But if you just think for a moment about the way that we would baptize people here at Kings, then three things that baptism represents are actually quite visible to us. Right? So I was baptised when I was 14 in water. It was very similar to the way we baptise people here. I walk up, you know, stand on a little plastic chair as you do, and then climb into the baptism pool. And I stand there and I put my arms like this. And somebody says, Andrew, have you? repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I say, I have. And they say, then I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the two of them, one on either side of me, lower me down into the tank like this and bring me back up again. Dripping wet and the whole church cheers. And I think we probably sang a song of praise and people prayed for me. I went through that, and many, many, many people in the history of this church, hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands upon thousands of people since this church has been here, have gone through that that ritual, that symbol, and it actually enacts three very powerful things, even if you're not particularly aware of what's going on. It's quite obvious to you that people firstly are... Being immersed or drenched or dunked in water, there is enacting immersion. People physically go into the water and get drenched by it, or marinated in it, or transformed by it. Right? You come out and you look different from when you went in. There is a you are going into something that is changing the way you look and feel, so your whole appearance is different. Your hair is dripping wet. Your clothes are soaking. I remember a guy in the church. I was used to be a pastor in Eastbourne and. I remember there was this guy there, who was called, who was called Alan, new Christian. Hadn't, I don't think he'd been to a baptism service before he was baptized himself. So it was kind of new to him. And he came, he came in and went and got into the baptism pool and got out again and was sort of standing on the side of the baptism pool as the next person gets in and gets baptized. And he's just standing there, just dripping wet, total drowned rat like this. And I was up, I was one of the pastors, I went up and said, Alan, you've not got a towel or you've not got someone to bring a towel with you, and maybe take, and he's just staring at me, soaking, and just goes, I just assumed one would be provided, and he's just, no one's told him that you have to bring a towel, so he's just standing there, just pour water, pouring off him, and I often think of him as an illustration of the, how obvious it is that someone has been drenched, or baptized, or immersed into another reality. It symbolizes, very simply, the idea that you are getting into something that is changing your identity, and your appearance, and coming out different there is an immersion taking place. Secondly, baptism symbolizes, again, kind of obvious this one, symbolizes washing. Right? In every culture that I've ever heard of, water is how you wash. You want to get clean, you use water. You might use hot water or cold water. It might be on a tap or a river. But if you want to get clean, you use water. You go into it dirty and you come out clean. And in baptism, that's what happens. People are symbolizing not only that they are going into Christ, if you like, and coming out different, but also that they are going into something that is cleaning them and washing them away of all of the dirt and all of the stains and all of the shame and all of the sin that they have brought into the tank with them. They are washed. And the Bible refers to the washing in baptism. And that's another symbol that's powerfully at work in this symbol, this act. That we go through. And then the third thing that's enacted, which might be the least obvious, but if you see the way it's done with the way we put people under and bring them up, it actually does become clear is that baptism is also a burial. Baptism is a burial and a resurrection symbol. So again, what happened to me? People take hold of me and they put me under the water and then they bring me up again into a new kind of life. People don't just climb in and climb out. Something happens to them. They are taken down into the water, symbolizing burial of the old life, and then lifted up again, symbolizing resurrection to new life. That's why we celebrate and cheer. So when we are baptized, we are enacting our immersion into the Father, Son, and Spirit, the washing away of all our sins, and the burial of our old life, and rising again to a new one. Just as Jesus died and was raised, so we in baptism die and are buried and then are raised. And that's why we take baptism seriously and why we celebrate it joyfully. It's powerful stuff. It does something. It's a very powerful expression of a reality that is far bigger than the realities we deal with in most of our lives. And so we make a big thing of it. We take it seriously and joyfully. Now the symbolism of baptism is incredibly strong. And as a result of that, what's happened is that in the history of the church, people have done it in different ways to try and capture different elements of what the symbolism means. So in our kind of church, we are symbolizing, we're really good at symbolizing immersion and burial and washing. There are some other symbols that our way of doing it doesn't pick up so well, because we don't baptize people in rivers anymore, for instance, or not, we don't here. Because... Well, that's London. Um, So we don't baptize, but that means that we lose some of the living water significance, and we don't sprinkle or pour. So the image of anointing can get lost. So there's different symbols will produce different resonances or layers of meaning for people. But one of the most powerful ways of doing baptism I've ever come across. I was reading recently some lectures by a guy called Cyril of Jerusalem in the 4th century. And this is going to sound really a little bit of a strange way of doing it, but I loved the depth of the way that they did it and how, what it communicated that they did it this way. So he's describing how people used to baptize people in the 4th century. And so what would happen is you'd start off at the beginning of the baptism process. You would start off and you would face west and you would stretch out your hand like Moses did at the Red Sea and then you would renounce Satan and all his works. You're looking into the darkness, if you like, and you're saying, Satan, I spit at you. I renounce everything. I renounce my old gods. I renounce anything that I used to worship. I don't want to follow you anymore, and I turn from you. And then you would turn to face east, which is the land where the sun rises, and you would affirm your belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in one baptism of repentance. And then you would go from there down into an inner chamber where... And I'm not saying we should do this at home where you would take off all of your clothes. They did naked baptism. They also did single-sex baptism for obvious reasons. So they took off all their clothes. You would symbolize, which in doing that, you're saying, I am taking off the old me. I'm taking off the old life with all of its outer trappings. I'm taking it off and I'm identifying myself with Jesus who suffered naked for me. And then they would be anointed or have oil poured over them, and the oil would be oil that represented exorcism, or the casting out of demons. And so that would represent that they themselves were now anointed with one who had driven out the powers of darkness. Having been anointed with oil, they would then go into the baptism pool, they'd make a confession of faith, and then they'd go down into the water, and they'd go under three times, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and it also represented the three days that Jesus was buried. Then they would come out of the water, and they still weren't done, because now they stand there on the side of the waters, still without clothes, and they are anointed with a different kind of oil on the forehead, their ears, their nostrils, and their chest, representing the removal of their shame, ears to hear, the aroma or the fragrance of Christ, and the breastplate of righteousness. And then they were finally given new clothes, and the new clothes were white, symbolizing purity, purity, And then from there, they would walk back into the sanctuary with the rest of the church. And they would receive the Eucharist or communion for the first time. Now, we don't do it like that now. And I'm not saying we should do all of those things now. I think naked baptisms in contemporary London would be a real stretch. But I think the symbolism is incredibly powerful. And hopefully you can see how those symbols tell a story about what baptism is and why it matters. They tell a story about freedom about new life and the transfer of our allegiance from the old gods to the new God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So throughout the church's story, we've done that kind of symbol in a lot of different ways. And we've done it with fonts and tanks and rivers. Um, But ever since Jesus said those words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we have acknowledged one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, as I said, in some ways, that's the more obvious bit when you're reading from Matthew 28. Because you can see the word baptizing right in there. So you know that that's one of the things the text's about. It's probably a little bit less obvious what the passage has to do, what the Great Commission has to do with one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So I want to explain that for a moment, but... The first thing we have to do in doing that explanation is to look at what those words holy, Catholic, apostolic actually mean, because otherwise that'll be confusing. So holy, when used of God's people, means set apart for God in purity and obedience. That's what holiness is for people. Catholic might sound like it means holy. Roman Catholic, but the Greek word Catholicos actually just means universal or general. That is, there is one general, universal church for the whole world. There's not hundreds and thousands of little churches. When I mean, there are, lo- We call them churches, local com- communities. But they are ultimately part of one big reality. One Catholic, universal reality. One church. And that's what it means to be a Catholic church. And to be an apostolic church means to be a church that has been sent out into the world. Apostolo is the Greek word for I send, right? Apostolic, sent out in line with the teachings and the example and traditions of Jesus and the apostles. So if you're an apostolic church, you're one who has been sent out into the world in line with Jesus' teaching. So that's what it means. So holy, Catholic, and apostolic is really saying, I believe that the church is one, that it is set apart, that it is worldwide, and that it has been sent out on mission in line with apostolic teaching. That's what it means. Now in light of that claim, now go back and look at Matthew 28, 18-20 again. Right? Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore... Make disciples, teaching them. Right? So the church is apostolic. The church has been sent out on a mission by Jesus to live in line with apostolic teaching in and through the authority of Jesus. So the church is apostolic. Then you notice Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. Every nation under heaven is to be disciples, is to be brought into an understanding of who Jesus is, taught his ways, baptized, and taught how to follow him. So the church in all nations is Catholic. The church is universal. The church was never intended to be a national church here and a funny little group over there and a weird bunch of odd bods over there who nobody else knew. The church was always intended to be one church, all nations. So the church is Catholic. Not Roman Catholic, but it's Catholic. It's universal. It's general. It's for for everybody. Billions of people speaking thousands of languages in hundreds of countries. All united in one church. Global, universal, worldwide, international. One church. And then Jesus says, of course, as we've seen, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, or to obey, all that I have commanded you. That is, the church is holy. The church has been baptized, or drenched, or immersed in the name of the Trinity, set apart for God, and commanded how to live in obedience to Jesus who has all authority in heaven and earth. So the church has been given instructions as to how to live like Jesus, the Holy One, and as such, to be a holy people ourselves. In other words, even though there is much more you could say from the Bible about the church, even if Matthew 28 was the only thing we had, we would still be those who believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Holy, we observe what Jesus has commanded us to. Catholic, all nations in one church. Apostolic, go therefore and make disciples and teach them. So we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church, whether we like it or not, because Jesus has commissioned us to be that kind of a people. And we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But before we wrap up, I want us to notice the connection between those two things, right? We believe in one baptism, we believe in one holy catholic and apostolic church, and that's a connection that the creed makes based on the Bible. So the creed deliberately puts the two things together, one baptism, one church. And I think the creed probably got that from the apostle Paul. Paul went further than that. He said, we we are one body, there is one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. No, Paul got seven and said, "There is because there is one church, one God, one hope, one faith, one baptism." So we have been brought into through baptism one community, one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church through one, if you like, symbol of entry that is baptism. Because there is one church, there has to be one baptism. Because there is one baptism, there has to be one church. Some of you know that I live in Eastbourne. Which uh, And I live in my, my house down on the south coast, so 200 meters from the sea. And I walk along the seafront all the time with my children. And I just love the vastness and the wideness of the ocean. I love looking at it. I, so it's a sort of regular place. And most days I will walk by the sea at some point. And sometimes, as this picture reveals, my daughter puts her face in it. So I'm just down by the sea, and we just go out, and Anna will just—she loves face dipping, so she just puts her face in the English Channel, and so that's a regular part of my life—is walking and and just looking at the sea, these waters where I where I live. Now, four miles from here, up at Greenwich, is the River Thames. It looks pretty different to the English Channel. Right, it's got views of the Isle of Dogs. I would not allow my daughter to put her face in it. But it is an uninterrupted body of water from Greenwich right the way around to my house. If you wanted to, you could swim it, or you could canoe it, or you could sail it. It's an uninterrupted body of water. Looks completely different. It, surroundings completely different, but it's one body of water that connects the two. Now, two weeks ago, I was at a conference in the Bay of Marathon in Greece. It's near Athens in Greece. And there, the view looks like this. And again, it is unbroken water from there to Greenwich. Right? There's just non-stop water. You could, you, I, you, if you had the power to do it, you could swim. From where I was in the Bay of Marathon, across the Aegean Sea, then out into the Mediterranean, all the way along, round past the Rock of Gibraltar, up around the side of France, and round the English Channel and through into the Thames. You could do that in one continuous body of water. You could drop a Coke can here and it could wash up there. I don't know what your favorite is. You might have a favorite location, a a sort of favorite sea view that you've been, a place where you've stood and looked at the sea and thought, that's my favorite place to see the sea. 13 years ago, Rachel and I, so my favorite place to see the sea, 13 years ago, Rachel and I went on honeymoon to Samoa Mm -hmm. in the South Pacific. like Just stunning, stunning location. And ever since then, I have kind of annoyed her by when we're walking on the seafront in Eastbourne, saying things like, can you believe that it's unbroken water all the way from here to Samoa? You could get, you could swim the whole way there. A Coke can dropped in here could wash up there. Isn't that amazing? And she just goes, yeah, you always say that when we're down here. Stop saying it. But I've always been seized by this sort of weird imagination that that is incredible, that from where I am to where the Titanic sank, to where I went on honeymoon, to Greece, to Cape Town, to Australia, it's all one body of water uniting the whole world. I just find it incredible that every day, Londoners, and Singaporeans, and Nigerians, and Indians, and Brazilians, and Samoans. We can all come out of our utterly, utterly different daily context and step into one massive, all-embracing ocean that somehow unites us all. Even though on land, we are divided right, by channels, and mountains, and national borders, and cultures, and languages. But when we step into the sea, We are caught up in one massive unbroken body of water that defies all earthly divisions and boundaries. That's what happens in baptism. That's exactly what happens in baptism. Like In worldly terms, we are completely different. Londoners and Singaporeans and Nigerians and Indians and Brazilians and Samoans and men and women from every nation and actually every generation as well through history. But when we step into the waters of baptism, people from across the world and across history get caught up into just one massive, unbroken body of water, which defies earthly divisions and boundaries. So you could continue trying to keep those boundaries in place. But when people step into the water, they are united with people they can't even see. We move from being isolated souls to united saints We change from standalone individuals to members of one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are one. And he is with us always to the very end of the age. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you for a community to belong to. Not only that we would not be lonely, although we are so grateful for community, but that we would be caught up in something bigger than ourselves and given a destiny that is way beyond what we could individually achieve. Caught up in a purpose, caught up in a unity that spans continents and centuries. And given this one astounding symbol of what it means to be in you, that is baptism. Being able to get into the water and rise again to new life. Representing all the death of the old, immersion in Jesus Christ and the washing away of our sins. We are so thankful for this body of people and for this glorious symbol of entry to it. We want to thank you for them and we want to pray that you would help us extend the offer of joining this wonderful body of people to as many people as we can reach. We are so thankful for the gift of the church and for the gift of baptism and most of all for the gift of Jesus who makes us all one through his death and resurrection. We thank you for him and we love you. Amen.